very academic. I'm keeping it, you know, real, real heady right here. Uh, the author of the article says, and I'm quoting from this article, a couple years ago, my buddies and I found ourselves drinking some nice craft beer at a dive bar. It was early on a casual Thursday night with none of us needing to be at work until around uh, 9 a.m. Friday morning. Given that vast expanse of time and the fact that all of us happened to be of this single persuasion, we decided it would be a great idea to talk with every single woman at the bar. Now, I wasn't intoxicated at all, but conversation did flow more easily than many other speak engagements with women. In fact, I had the great fortune to talk with a couple of women who not only looked stunning, but also happened to be sports fans. It was winter, and it was the middle of football season, so naturally, my Cowboys fandom was revealed. The two women were from Washington, D.C., and were diehard Redskins fans. And given my natural ability to turn every conversation into an argument, we started debating the two merits of the two teams. I was very powerfully attracted to the one woman. Yes, she was a fan of the hated rival team, but her passionate defense of her team that charmed me. I put all team affiliations aside, and then I took her number. The question that I have is this. Is this rare? Can fans of rival teams, can they coexist in the dating world, and can they become a family? Now, I know a woman, a uh, University of Alabama alum, who found a good-looking guy who she was attracted to. However, once he told her that he went to Auburn, conversation instantly died. For she was raised in the roll-tide faith, and she could never date a tiger. So, does baseball affiliation provoke this same kind of extreme reaction? Is there a great divide equal to that of college football? I pose this question to a woman from New York who said she loved the Yankees. Why? Because she loved winners. And I asked her, I asked her, if a Red Sox fan asked her out, well, what would her response be? She said, I'd rather date a Giants or a Braves fan because anything is better than a Sox fan. She said, although I'd give him a chance to prove to me that his choice in women is better than his choice in sports teams. <laughs> now, another young woman I know who's uh, well-known in East Coast professional community, she's dating an intense Redskins fan. And while his fandom hasn't been an issue in their relationship, it hasn't been an issue because she doesn't care about football. But she was enthused when the Skins lost this past January, when he said, I think I'm going to go to bed early tonight. Now, this might have been different if she had some semblance of sports fandom, though it could have gotten ugly if she were a Seahawks fan. But then again, if she was a sports fan, given RG3's national popularity, she might have griffoned right along with him, listening with sensitivity as he poured out his feelings and ate mint chocolate chip ice cream after the horrible playoff loss. Well, MLB fandom has a tribal nature similar to that of NFL and college sports teams, and it's passed down from generation to generation, especially with Yankee fans. Regardless of whether the team wins or loses, you continue to put on your pinstripes for 162-plus games a year. When dads throw their sons out into the wild to find a mate, this can lead to some difficult compromises. It has been my experience that dating someone who is a fan of the same team who is in the same sports family is probably the best way to go, though the ideal would be 
that you are a little bit more committed of a fan than she is. Now that's a pretty, that's a pretty you know, uh, academic article that I uh, came at you all this morning. Um, but uh, there's some wisdom to take in from this. And uh, before we pray, uh, let's go to the Lord, confess our sin of thinking that our familial bonds somehow together should be contingent on one's team affiliation. So let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this time, Lord, that we get to learn more about your word, Lord, that we get to learn about your family. Lord, there are rival families, Lord, in this world. There are those, Lord, who, Lord, belong to Satan's family, Lord, and those who belong to your family. And Lord, you are full of grace, mercy, and love, Lord, and you open yourself up, Lord, to have those who don't know you, Lord, come be a part of your family. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have adopted us as sons and daughters into your family, Lord, because we need a family that will never disappoint us, that will always be with us, Lord, that will always encourage us the right way. Lord, and you have given that to us, Lord, by sending your spirit and sending, Lord, your brothers and sisters, Lord, in Christ to us. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your family that you've given us. Lord, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. And we all said, amen. Amen. Well, the passage that we're looking at today, it comes from Matthew chapter 12. We are still in the sermon series, The King and His Kingdom, and we're going through the book of Matthew from beginning to end. If you have your Bibles, if you have your bulletins, or if you have your Bibles um, on electronic device, uh, please flip to Matthew 12. We're going to look at verses 38 through 45. 38 through 45. And if you're following along in your bulletin, this is going to be our first sermon point. And the first sermon point is titled, Satan's Family. So please read with me, Matthew 12, 38 through 45. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, well, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds that the house is empty, it's swept, that it's put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and then they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. What Jesus has been doing here for the past two chapters, in chapters 11 and 12, He's showing a stark contrast between those who belong to Satan's family and those whom belong to his own family or God's family. 
Jesus, in his interactions with the religious leaders of his day, which are the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, he has been revealing their hearts. He's been revealing the hearts of those who are evil and wicked and those who believe and who repent. He's drawing a separation of those who do their own or self-will and who belong to Satan's family and those who do God's will and do, um, who are a part of God's family. And today in our passage in Matthew 12, we're going to see Jesus describe some of these family characteristics of Satan's family and also of God's family. We're going to see some characteristics here. So, what are some of the characteristics of Satan's family? First point. Well, the first one that comes to us in our passage, it is a demand for signs and wonders, or, or basically miracles. And so they say, some of the scribes and Pharisees, they answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we, we, we just wish to see a sign from you. Now to those who are just reading this portion of the scripture, might not think that this is that much of a problem. They're wishing for a sign. Jesus is doing signs. They're wishing one. But if you have read through, if you've heard some of the other sermons, as we've gone through Matthew 1 through 11, you would also then see that this question is absolutely ridiculous, that these guys are demanding a sign. For one, Jesus has done a bunch of signs already. He's done a sign, a couple of them, here in just chapter 12. But also, who are these mortal men to demand a sign from God, that they have some authority to say, God, now do what I tell you to do? Who are they to have that? But more importantly, in light of where we are in our passage and in, in context, and looking at chapter 12, what kind of signs have we seen? Well, we've seen that a man was healed with a withered hand and the Pharisees' own synagogue. And then in response, what did the Pharisees do? They sought to destroy Jesus for healing this man with a withered hand. Then a deaf man and a mute man who was oppressed by demons was brought to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus healed him and he cast out the demons. And then the Pharisees accused Jesus of being simply in cahoots with Satan, that it's by Satan that he has the power to cast out these demons, which is ridiculous. But now as we come to our passage, these Pharisees and scribes, in a real almost a, a fake and respectful tone, they say, teacher, we just wish to see a sign from you. Jesus, being much wiser than I, because I probably would have hit these men, um, this is, he's done so much, and yet they neglect it. Jesus simply says to you, this is the family that you belong to, and I will not give you a sign. Essentially, Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you know how you said I was possessed by Satan when I healed the deaf and mute man? I tell you, it is you moral religious men who do not have a relationship with me that are possessed and owned by Satan. For you have not believed the signs that I have given already. They haven't believed the signs that were given already. That's why they demand for more signs. The second characteristic of Satan's family are those of an unbelieving and unrepentant hearts. What Jesus tells them is that they have been given many signs that their own earthly eyes have been witness to, and now no more signs will be given except the sign of Jonah, which as Dr. Silvernail talked about last week, it's a shadow or an Old Testament type of Jesus and his glorious resurrection. 
Now Jesus is telling these Jewish religious men that even the pagan Gentiles, the men of Nineveh, who didn't have these wondrous signs done for their own eyes, that even they repented and believed when Jonah preached to them. And Jonah was just a prophet. And now, somebody greater than even Jonah is here. But he's saying, Pharisees, you have not believed. And if that wasn't enough, even the Gentile pagan queen of the south, who sought wisdom from King Solomon and believed, she will also rise up and she will condemn you morally religious men. Why? Because someone greater than King Solomon is here now and is doing signs and wonders. But yet you men have not believed. And with Jesus still laying down his divine hammer on these moral and unbelieving and unrepentant men, he gives them a short parable describing another characteristic of Satan's family, to whom they belong. And that is those who live according to self-will rather than God's will. He's saying, they have no part in my family if you live according to your own self-will rather than God's will. And this is what Jesus means when he says in verses 43 through 45, you can read along with me. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And then the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it is also with this evil generation, as Jesus has said. Well, this short parable, it illustrates the principle that no one, no one can be neutral or indifferent to the claims of Jesus to be the greater prophet, priest, and king. You either love Jesus or you don't. And he's, he's saying that this, that there's no neutrality here, especially when he's doing wondrous signs right for this generation whom he's present with before their very own eyes. This generation is seeing Jesus in flesh do awesome things, but yet they would not believe. This illustration of a demon man leaving a man due to some moral cleaning up of himself, um, that's what it means when it says swept or put in order, it's not going to help this guy very much when the demon returns with more of his evil friends. A simple moral cleaning, just doing better, isn't going to do the trick. Why? Because even organizing one's life or reforming one's habits and morals without a complete heart change will inevitably lead to more evil in the end. Because the master of the house hasn't changed. The master of the house is still Satan. He still owns the house. Without there being a new owner, evil is the only possible tenant. The difference is, is evil now just may take a more socially acceptable form like being more moralistic, more self-righteous, more self-willed, or self-reliant. Jesus is saying true change 
begins inwardly with a change of heart and a change of the will. If you are going to strive to lay aside sin, you must put something in its place. Moral reform, changing habits, simply trying harder is not adequate enough. The Apostle Paul said, You were taught with regard to your former ways of life to put off your old self, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Church, the problem is that many of us know that we have been adopted into God's family. If we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we know we've been adopted into his family. But we exhibit characteristics as if we belonged to Satan's family. And we do this by being incredibly moralistic, self-righteous, self-reliant, and being incredibly self-willed, and if, I might add, judgmental. We say the right lot, we say the right things a lot of times, especially if we've grown up in the church, we know what to say. But a lot of our actions reveal something quite different. A lot of our actions, they they reveal the surfacey veneer of our Sunday Christianity. They reveal a heart that doesn't believe the scriptural truths of God, or we don't believe them very deeply. It also reveals a heart that desires to do what it wants to do rather than what God has called us to do and what he's created and made us to do, which is his will, not ours. So my simple application to this point and applying this is to think about your interactions with your family, your blood relatives, as well as your spiritual family. Because if you love Jesus Christ, you are part of God's family. Where are you reverting back to your old self or the flesh in your interactions with us or your blood relatives? Where are you living, doing actions that are consistent with Satan's family rather than being loving, kind, generous, and so forth? Where are you being inappropriately demanding of your heavenly Father? Are you demanding that he do small signs to confirm things for you? Are you being demanding or judgmental of us, your pastors, and whether it's in thoughts or words? Is there a compartment of your life in which you're choosing on the, to hold on to this compartment rather than trusting God that he is in control and that he's working all things for the good of his family members? Are you remaining unrepentant for some of the things that you've said or maybe that you've done to hurt another family member? Are you relying on your own wisdom instead of seeking the wisdom and counsel from your heavenly father? or some of your brothers and sisters here? Are you more concerned about maintaining your moralistic appearance before people, looking good on the outside, than concerned about your spiritual status before the Heavenly Father who sees all? Are you trying to clean up or organize your life on the outside, but neglecting the need for a heart transformation on the inside? I could go on and on with more more questions like this, But what I want you to think about today is one way in which you are reverting back 
to your old self, displaying characteristics that are consistent with those whom belong to Satan's family. Where are you reverting back to your old self? And if there are those of you who are here who currently belong to Satan's family, think about which family you'd like to be a part of. There is always, and I stress this, always there's grace and there is mercy in God's family. He will always accept you and love you when you cry out for mercy and you repent of your sins. He will draw near to you and say, yes, I'm here, I'm your Savior, and I will love you. But first, you got to do business with Jesus because he's the one whom adopts us into his family. Church, please, I know this is easy to do, not just in Northern Virginia, but to drown out this opportunity to be introspective about these challenging questions, about what's going on really in our hearts, because I know we're busy. I know a lot of times we can get in the car and we can turn the radios on or we've got lunch plans or we've got awesome football game. But it take at least a few minutes today to think about how you are reverting back to some of your old ways. Um, or if you don't know Jesus, to think about maybe considering that this Jesus guy has something pretty awesome to offer. Take a few minutes to do that sometime today. And as I wrote this in the sermon, as I'm calling you to do that, I've got to do it myself too, right? I can't just tell you to do it and me not do it. I actually had to stop what I was doing. I was writing a sermon and do exactly what I was calling you to do. And this is what I was thinking when I um, did the very same thing. For I tend to struggle with believing that if I give up this particular sin in my life, I tend to struggle with believing that the Lord will put something better in its place. I, in a sense, am choosing my own self-will, holding on to my sin, thinking that this sin is better than what God has in store for me. And instead of choosing God's will, I'm choosing my self-will. I'm trusting that the sin that I can partake in is more fulfilling than what God has. That's an area where I struggle, and I struggle to believe that what God has for me is going to be better, and what he's going to replace that sin with is better and more fulfilling. And so I know this particular sin that I revert back to in my old self, and so when I came upon this, I, it, it gave me reason to pause and to think about this, how I'm reverting back. And I think this would also should give you a moment to pause to think about that as well, to take some time today to think about that. Well, we've established so far that we struggle and we revert back to living like our old selves, belonging to Satan's family, being demanding of God, which many of us do, not always believing or trusting God, which many of us do, and also choosing to follow our own wills rather than God's, which we do a lot. And you know what? Misery loves company. Jesus' own flesh and blood exhibited two of these same characteristics in the next section. So let's take a look. Flip to verses 46 through 50. Matthew 12, 46 through 50. And this is point number two. This is God's family. Let's read together. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him, being Jesus. But he replied to the man who told him this, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother 
and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, is my sister, and is my mother. Here we see Jesus' own family demand that Jesus come speak with them. Why would they demand this? Well, we're going to see in just a minute. But can't they clearly see that Jesus, he's speaking to a large crowd within a house. Can't they see that he's busy? So why are they being so demanding, speaking, demanding that Jesus come speak with them? They can clearly see he's busy. Well, we know that obviously they could see that he was busy because they sent a messenger who could get to Jesus and relay this message. And the reason for their interruption, it's more clearly understood when we look at Mark's version of the story and Mark 3. The author of the Gospel, Mark, he records this, which has a few extra details to help us here to know why Jesus' family is being so demanding. Mark records, and when his, Jesus' family, heard that Jesus was teaching, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, Jesus, he is out of his mind. And his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and they called him. The Apostle John records in his gospel that not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. Jesus' family didn't initially believe him. And Jesus, knowing this, says to the crowd, he says this, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, is my sister, and is my mother. Now, is Jesus trying to take a jab at his family for interrupting him or not believing him? No. That might be something that we might do, but that is not something what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is putting the kingdom of God before his blood relatives. He is accurately declaring that the loyalty to himself should be higher than any loyalty that we might have to our own blood relatives. That includes our children. For God's family is eternal, and our earthly families may or, not, may or may not be eternally connected. That depends on the individual's relationship with Christ, which also determines their eternal destination. Jesus is saying, I am more important than anything else. I am more important than anything in your life, because I'm the one who gives you life and life eternal. And those who love God, who believe him and do his will, they are eternally connected as brothers and sisters. That means you're also going to be stuck with them for eternity. Right? For some of you, that may be good news. For others, you say, ah, maybe not the best news. Right? Especially if there's somebody who uh, is going to be in heaven that you wish would not be there. Um, like Jonah, right? And all the men of Nineveh who repented at his preaching. He didn't want them to believe. But yet they repented and they believed at Jonah's preaching. And those who did, who trusted that the Messiah would come, they will be with him in heaven. But either way, what Jesus is doing here, he's contrasting those who are in God's family and those who are in Satan's family. For those in God's family, they believe, they repent, and they do God's will. You may be thinking, that sounds great but it sounds a little general, a little bit too broad. What is God's will, one? And two, how do I follow it? Those are good questions to ask. 
And those are the types of questions that God's family members that they ask. Let's start with the first question. What is God's will? Well, I assume what you're really asking is, is what is God's revealed will? Because there are things that God does and things that God allows that we will never fully understand until we are on the other side of heaven. Things that he does not reveal to us. But what is God's revealed will? Well, he lays it out for us in Scripture. He lays out what his revealed will is in our Bibles. Jesus, he wills us to do things like love your Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. He wills us to do things like love your neighbors as yourselves. I know that's not an easy one. He wills us to do things like be patient, be kind, do not be envious, do not be boastful, do not be prideful, do not keep a record of wrongs, which is not easy to do if you're married. Do not be rude, and do not be self-seeking. He wills us to do things like don't demand signs of God. Do not put the Lord God to test. He has done the signs already. Believe what he's already done. He wills us to believe him about his son Jesus. And then we are also then told to tell people about the good news of Jesus. Whether it's a good time in their life or it's a hard time. Whether it's in season or whether it's out of season. These are only a few examples of characteristics God expects his family members to exhibit. But they are characteristics that he expects of us nonetheless. But I know you still want to know, how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we follow the will of God? It's a big question. It's not an easy one. I'm going to take my best um, stab at answering these questions. I have three responses to um, how do I follow the will of God. These are the three. One, read your Bible. Two, pray. Three, come to church, learn, and listen. I have no silver bullet. There is no secret holy list of ways to do God's perfect will every single time. I don't have a magical list like that to give to you and say, do this and you'll do the will of God forever. What we can do, though, is we can read God's word, which tells us what his will is. Two, we pray. We talk to God, just like we talk to our friends. We talk with him because he will always answer and we talk to him, we ask him, Lord, what do I do in this particular situation? Because I don't have the wisdom to know what I'm supposed to do. You tell me, what do I do? Because the Lord, he will help you in that situation to know what he is calling you to do in that time. And he will help you to know the manner in which you are supposed to do it. Read God's word, pray. And also come to church, listen and learn from God's wisdom because you're going to be hearing a lot of God's good wisdom from the scriptures, but also from Sunday school, but also from your brothers and sisters who have good wisdom just to pass on to you that is biblical. And there is much that you and I can learn from our brothers and sisters in our family, but that we can also learn from our Father's text, his words for you, which are contained in the Bible. Listen and learn. I know following God's will is not easy, but if you have Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have a Bible, and if you have a church, 
you have all the tools at your disposal to make progress in following God's will. And I'm, I'm calling you to utilize those resources that you have. I think all too often we don't utilize the resources that we have been given because we don't fully believe that we have been adopted and accepted into God's family. I think a lot of us wrestle with that. We don't believe that God truly loves us, even though we've done all these horrible things. And that's why we often revert, revert back to a lifestyle that is consistent with belonging to Satan's family. We either fail to accept God, that he loves us no matter what, or we fail to appreciate what Jesus has actually done on the cross. Some of us fail to accept that God loves us no matter what, and that he doesn't reject you or cut you off when you sin. Sometimes we fail to believe that God accepts us even though we don't live a perfect, a moral, and organized life. Some of us fail to accept that, or believe that, I should say. And some of us even fail to appreciate the full extent of what Jesus has done on the cross. If we're honest with ourselves, some of us don't really appreciate that very much sometimes, or maybe all the time, I don't know. And if you're in that group of failing to truly appreciate what Jesus has done for you, and that is the reason why you choose to follow your own will, your self-will, rather than God's will, I'm going to hopefully sober you up just a moment. Remember, you were once an object of God's wrath, destined for destruction and eternal damnation. That is the reality for all of us because all of us are born into sin, and that is the justice that we deserve. Never leaving the grips of hell. That is justice, that we would receive punishment for our sin and a holy God's eyes. Remember, God's justice would be exacted on you, on your sins. But I also, though, if you don't appreciate it, I want you to remember, though, and learn to appreciate Jesus' sacrifice on the cross because he was moodily, he's brutally murdered and humiliated so that you wouldn't have to be. He took your place on the cross, and now he will forever accept you into his family. Your family may at some point disown you or have issues with you, something like that, but in God and his family, he will never leave you. He will never not talk to you, not pick up the phone. He will always be there for you. He forever accepts you as an adopted son or daughter into his perfect family if you believe. And as adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, he is calling you to act according to the characteristics that are consistent with his family. Because you will enjoy your family more when you do, and you will also be able to do God's will more in your life when you do. And that is going to bring you more internal peace and joy than ever before. Whatever sin there is, it cannot compare with the peace and joy that can only come from your Heavenly Father. And it is His to dispense. And yes, part of God's will is that you coexist with those who are different from yourselves. Because God's family is diverse, right? Here with ours. Your blood family is probably, blood relatives are probably diverse. 
And he's calling us to coexist with them. You know, um, that's a fact that he's called us to. And I know it's not easy, right? And he's also calling us to coexist and to love those arrival sports teams. And those of you who are sports fans know how difficult that is. But he's calling you to do that. And I know that he's calling you to do that because of my own personal experience with this. I happen to work with uh, an amazing pastoral family. But given that I'm a Redskins fan, I am being called to love a Cowboy fan, a Steelers fan, and a Patriots fan. And let me tell you, if you love football, you love NFL, you love Redskins, you know that's not easy. I'm telling you, the Lord's calling you to love them, those who are in your body, regardless of their sports team's affiliations, regardless of the difficulties that they have or how maybe hard they are to talk with. He's calling you to love them. He's calling you also to believe and love your Heavenly Father too and to trust Him to do His will. A part of doing God's will is loving your church family here, becoming more connected with them, and loving your own blood relatives despite whatever difficulties there may be or diversity that there may be. He's calling us to love them because God's family display characteristics that are consistent with him and his nature. And God is good, and he wants his people to display those things too. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son or that he died on the cross for us so that we could be adopted, Lord, into your perfect family. Lord, family life is not easy, whether it's in this body, whether it's in this church, or whether it's in our own, with our blood relatives. Family life isn't easy. But Lord, you are calling us, Lord, to live lives that are consistent, Lord, with the family whom we belong to, which is your family, being loving, being kind, being patient, being tender with those. It's not easy, Lord, but we need your help to do these things because often we revert back to our old ways of living. Lord, when once we were belonging to Satan. But Lord, if we have a relationship with you, Lord, that is no more. We have been, Lord, given a new, a new heart that has changed. You have given us a new self, Lord. And Lord, we need to talk with you and pray and read your scripture Lord, to know what your will is so that, Lord, we can deal with our family members, Lord, in a more God-honoring way. Help us this day, Lord. We love you, we trust you, Lord, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.